Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. This is Gilbert Gottfried with another episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here with my sidekick, Frank Santo Padre. Hi, Gilbert. All right, don't start talking. All right. It's really annoying. And we're here with someone, uh, a TV show I grew up on. I always watch this because I always loved monsters. And so when this show was on, I watched every single episode, and that was The Monsters with Fred Gwynn and, uh, and Al Lewis and Yvonne DiCarlo. And now we have with us the little boy uh, of Herman and Lily, uh, Eddie Munster, Butch Patrick. Welcome to the show, Butch. Thank you very much, Gilbert. Nice to meet you. Now, you, you st- how did you go about getting the job on the Munsters? Well, um, in the early 60s, my mom knew an agent who was breaking off to open an exclusively child's agency. Her name was Mary Grady. And uh, her son was already working as Robbie on My Three Sons, Don Grady. And um, my little sister actually was who they had their sights set on. And I went along for the ride, and they took a few photos of me at the end of the shoot. And one of the pictures wound up in a... Uh, a Hollywood Boulevard photographer's window, a guy named Amos Carr, who was a very famous photographer back there. And I had this look about me that somebody saw, and it wasn't quite like Lana Turner at the drugstore, but somebody on Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard saw it, and somebody saw it, and then they uh, submitted me for three interviews. And I got my first three interviews were a commercial for Kellogg's, a movie, and a series called General Hospital in its first year. So I got very lucky, and I got some credits under my belt. I then went on to do The Real McCoys for a year, a lot of guest starring roles in some movies. And in 1964, they had cast, uh, they'd gone to a lot of kids in Hollywood looking for Eddie Munster, and they narrowed it down to this one kid, had actually hired him and shot a pilot named Happy Derman. 
But at the last minute, they decided to go a different direction. They uh, flew me in from Illinois where I was living with my grandma. And me and uh, Yvonne DiCarlo did a screen test together. And they said, uh, don't bother going back to the airport. You got a job. Wow. Now, this – so and, – and you've had several parts before the Munsters. Yeah, like yeah. the two series. But aside from the two series, I did a lot of movies. Uh, I did a lot of – Back then, we had Mr. Ed's and My Favorite Martians. And, Didn't you, you do know, Bonanza, Butch, and, uh, I did, and Rawhide? I, I did a few Bonanzas. I did a couple Gunsmokes, mm-hmm. Rawhide, uh, Death Valley Days, uh, Ben Casey, um, Alcoa premieres. So just a lot of uh, The Untouchables, uh, things wow. like that. Lots of stuff. You did, yeah. like, every show on the air, basically. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Back in the 60s, I, for, for a 10-year run from 61 to 71 is really all the time that I worked. I did, I did keep pretty busy, yeah. Before we jump back to the Munsters, can we ask you any memories of, of Clint Eastwood on Rawhide? Or, uh, well, or you know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't really famous back then. He right. was just a working actor, and I, just, I used to get a lot of westerns because I could ride a horse. My uncle was a jockey, and my other uncles used to supply horses to the studio. So because I was one of the few kids in Hollywood that was comfortable on a horse— uh, I got a lot of westerns, but I remember Clint. Uh, he was nice. He was uh, kind of a rugged kind of a guy, a man's man, and uh, you could sense that he was probably going to become a movie star. He, you, kind of, you could sort of feel there was something about him that had greatness. And what about Walter Brennan uh, on the Real McCoys? You were a recurring character on there, weren't you? Yeah, that was funny. That was the last year of the McCoys where they had gotten rid of the family, and Kathleen Nolan had left, and they didn't have the kids, and all they had was Pepita, Amos. And Luke. So what they did was um, they needed a love interest for uh, Luke, and I, they had a woman, a widow, get the farm next door, and I was her son. So basically, I would ride my pony over and visit, and Luke would take me fishing, and I would hang around with the McCoys uh, as their sort of adopted sons. Now, but, but to answer to answer your question, Walter Brennan was a, was a joy to work with, and Richard Crenna. They were like really neat guys. Now, now here's a question out of nowhere. Uh, back then, everybody, I remember, like, much like Cagney and Lugosi, that every comedian did an imitation of. They all did an imitation of Walter Brennan. Can you do a Walter Brennan imitation? <laughs> well, probably the only thing that it would be close to would be was he would uh, always be calling for Pepina. Papina, you know, and, that, and Papina would always be out hitting golf balls because when he wasn't on camera, he loved to swing golf balls, these golf clubs, and hit golf balls. Now, I I heard stories with Fred Gwynn that that he was like kind of embarrassed by his uh, being known as Herman Munster or doing the show. That is uh, true. After the show wrapped and he went on to do other things, he was constantly compared to no matter what he did on screen, he was always the, – the people in the audience would murmur, oh, there's a Herman Munster and Herman Munster this and Herman Munster that. And he did such a good job that it kind of became his, uh, his uh, I don't know, Achilles heel somewhat. I mean people just always remembered him as Herman Munster no matter what he did. Yeah, typecasting, right? Yeah. Now, what do you remember of the relationship, the friendship between Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis? Well, Gilbert and I were talking, uh, Bush. So, they were such opposites. I mean, a Harvard guy and a, and a, and a guy from the streets. Yeah, Al was, uh, you know, Al was just such a typical uh, New Yorker. I mean, we miss him a lot. He was, you know, he, when I would go visit him at his restaurant and stuff, I mean, he would walk down the street and just everybody would stop and wave and yell grandpa. <laughs> and, yeah. and he loved it. I mean, it's like you, Gilbert. I mean, you're, everybody knows who you are and everybody loves you. And, and, and Al was the same way. And uh, him and Fred, to be honest with you, having been so 
different, but having worked together on Car 54, I guess they created this on-screen persona and they became friends that I honestly believe some of their comedy routines in the Munsters are as good as any Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello. Oh, wow. Because I, I, I know it's like, yeah, they often said, like, Fred Gwynn was from a very, like, well-to-do waspy family, and yep. Al Lewis was this New York Jew of the streets. <laughs> right. He was, a, yeah, he was basically, in, he grew up in the circus and in vaudeville. He was a great and, character. We went into Grandpa's restaurant on Bleecker Street many times. I have to tell you, know, you Butch, once you know, I had, what's that? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you know who owned Grandpa's restaurant? Who's that? John Gotti. Really? I had heard that. <laughs> Wait a second. That's good stuff. Wait, I had heard that, that it was like a mob-owned joint. It was. <laughs> it was. I used to go there for, for dinner, and, I, and it would be, hey, you gotta, you got to call me, Mikey, or Tony. Uh, Al don't remember things so good. You want to get a table, you got to talk to me. <laughs> so it was like Goodfellas. <laughs> it was. I was, a, I was a film school student, and I was in, eating dinner at uh, Grandpa's, and there was a script sitting on the table. And, you know, he used to make the rounds and go from table to yes. table with yes. the little stogie in his mouth. Oh, yes. Greet everybody, and he comes over, and he says hello and asks if we're having a good time. And he says, is that a script? And I said, <laughs> yes, it is. He picks it up in the palm of his hand, and he picks it up and picks it up and weighs it, and he puts it down. And he says, overwritten. <laughs> and, and just I twirled his cigar and walked away. It was a great moment. People who uh, I still have people coming up to me. I mean, everybody who ever met Al Lewis remembers the remembers the meeting vividly. What a wonderful character! And you know, of course, he's so known for the monsters, but he did a lot of wonderful things. I mean, he's in this great Sherlock uh, kind of a kind of a comedy about Sherlock Holmes called "They Might Be Giants" with yeah. Paul Newman George, and Joanne was that Woodward. George C. Scott. Yep, George yeah. C. Scott, and he's very funny in a <laughs> Kurt Russell comedy called "Used Cars." Yeah, he was the hanging judge. Yep. He did a lot of other stuff that, that people don't and, talk about oh, and give him credit and, for. And he pops up in one of the, these episodes I remember so well of Night Gallery, yep. where Godfrey Cambridge is a failing comedian, and he finds a genie played oh, yeah. by Jackie Vernon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he wants to be funny. And the club owner is Al Lewis, and I think his agent is uh, uh what's his name from uh happy days tom bosley, the, tom bosley. Right. <laughs> he turned up in the strangest places but he was always good yeah he was a strong character actor no doubt in fact the grandpa character i mean well you remember al he was running for governor he was running sure. for senator he was a green party he was a political activist and you know he he lobbied to have his name on the ballot as grandpa al lewis Yep, and a basketball <laughs> expert, and an old huge round ball yep. expert. That's I mean, right. he was actually on the payroll of several NBA right. NBA teams at the uh, high school level because he would go out and see high school players, and he knew like every player on St. John's to the twelfth man. You know, I I remember Al Lewis bumping into <laughs> into him a lot during these Al Goldstein, you know, the publisher of Screw Magazine. Screw, yeah. <laughs> he would have these big luncheons. And uh, there would be uh, Al Lewis there with his smelly cigar and his long fingernails and Western clothes. Yeah, he was a very interesting character. He was very eccentric, and especially, a lot of people don't remember this, but Al was a very big guy. He was like 6'3". And because he was standing next to Fred Gwynn in those shoes at 7 feet tall, a lot of people were surprised when they meet Al that I didn't realize how tall he was. 
and the fact that he did the, the long fingernails and the and the hair sometimes would be in a ponytail and sometimes it was wildly out the sides like sideburns and, and the cowboy always, boots, cowboy boots. <laughs> That's and right. And, and Howard Stern used to make huge fun of him. You know, oh my god, <laughs> the bolo tie, the bolo tie. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, just a great character. And they were yeah. such a wonderful comedy team. I mean, they, as you said, they'd had a little background together on Car 54, yeah. but they, they, they were just a great Mutt and Jeff team on the Munsters. Well, their timing was just impeccable. Well, you think about something, you know, how a show that only was on two years, which will be 50 years in September, uh, has maintained a popularity not only with the original viewership, but now kids are watching it with their grandkids and their, you know, and their great-grandkids, and they like it as well. I mean, sure, the kids like it today just because it's funny and it's humorous, but uh, Conley and Mosier, who did that show, they were pretty slick. They, I mean, they, that, that show had a lot of social overtones that you weren't aware of. And they were the Leave it, really, it to Beaver guys, weren't they? They, they were the Leave it to Beaver guys, and they also did Amos and Andy before Leave it to Beaver. Now, I think the original idea for the show was called My Father the Monster, and that was created by, of all people, uh, Jerry Lewis Clone. Sammy Petrillo. I'm not aware of that. If you remember, there was a comedy team of uh, Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo who were this frightening. Uh, They they starred in Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. I'm sure everyone has seen that. A classic. And Sammy Petrillo was this freakish clone of Jerry Lewis. And they said he once wrote a screenplay called My Father the Monster. I had heard that there was something floating around the Universal lot. They were trying to do something with the Universal Monsters because, you know, as you know, like every studio had somewhat of a, a special niche. Uh, MGM did musicals and Fox did disaster films. And the, and the Universal was the monster studio. They did all the monster stuff. And I knew that they were trying to, uh, or at least I had heard, that they were trying to figure out what to do with this Universal monster um the uh, emblem that they had and i guess back in the 50s they thought of something but it never took hold and then when the adams family was going into production they hurried to fast track something into play and colleen Moser had just had just uh, closed production on the beaver and this is what they came up with i've been told interesting and you were starting to say that there there were social overtones to the monsters that people might not know about oh very much so don't judge a book by its cover people living on the block that you don't want them there i mean it was the 60s there were civil rights i mean you you think about people of color well hell we were green right (laughs) (laughs) and of course the uh the the movie was was in color monster go home yeah, the movie was in color, and it's funny. I was watching a screening of it the other day, uh, a new print with some people, and Kevin Burns, who's a filmmaker and probably the biggest Munster knowledgeable collector, uh, informed me that I didn't know why. That He said, you know, the reason they made that movie was the fact that they were going to syndicate the Munsters around the world, but nobody had ever seen it. So they released this feature to introduce the Munsters to the world, and then it made it easier for them to sell their syndication packaging. Interesting. Now, Yeah, it was. Now, you as Eddie... I mean, that that looked like, for the most part, just like a widow's peak and some white makeup and eye makeup. How long did Fred Gwynn's makeup take? He came in at 6, and he was done by about 8.30, about two to two and a half hours. And then during the day, the constant touch-ups and the fact that he was in that big rubber suit. and the, I mean, it was really a difficult part for him to play. But if there was a saving grace in the whole thing, it was the fact that we were only in makeup three days a week. We would read on Monday, we would rehearse on Tuesday, which were very short days, and then Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, they would, they would really you know, put out a lot of effort to get, them, to get it finished in three days. 
And he wore like a big foam rubber undersuit. Under yes, he did. He was a very skinny guy, very, very much of a string bean, uh, six foot, six and a half, probably didn't weigh more than 150 pounds. So it's hot. You, you, you guys are under lights. You're in the San Fernando yep. Valley, or, <laughs> or at least Los Angeles, and, you, and, yep. he's, and he's wearing, what, 40 pounds of rubber and clothes? Because I've seen Al Lewis in documentaries talk about how much weight he would lose. Yeah, he did. He had, he had his own special little air hose to cool him off, and he had gallons and gallons of lemonade that was on top of the, uh, the honey wagon that he would go over that he could only reach. It was, it was his own private stash. But even with that, he was still losing a lot of fluid every day, and his boots would just be filled with sweat at the end of the day. Wow. Uh, tell Tough us, job. T- tell us, Butch, too. What, what we talked before about why the original Lily was replaced. And I, in fact, I don't think she was even called Lily Munster in the pilot. Phoebe. They had her called Munster. Phoebe, yeah. I, I honestly, I don't know. I just know that me and Yvonne, I, well, I think Yvonne was an addition to the show because of her name. She was actually a movie star. Sure. And she, Ten she was Commandments. Going, and, she, and she was coming in when really movie stars weren't doing television. And she, the reason she did it, my belief was that her husband, uh, who was a stuntman, had been hurt and terribly maimed on the How the West Was Won train accident that went bad. His name was Bob Morgan. And, you know, I think that she actually took the job, or at least part of the reason she took the job, was to bring in some money to be the breadwinner. And she did a fantastic job. She, she was up against uh, Al and Fred, who were practical jokers, extraordinaire, who really made her life difficult in the beginning. And she, 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 you know, she survived, and she, uh, she did comedy much better than anybody thought she could. Because I saw something in a documentary about the show that, that Joan Marshall, the original actress, uh, they were speculating that she, she too closely resembled Carolyn Jones, who was playing Morticia on The Addams Family, and that was something that was working against her. That's true too, and and then I, th- I think that I think honestly the fact that they just looked at me and Yvonne, the name recognition of her, the way Eddie was portrayed by me, and I just thought at the last minute they just tweaked it a little bit, and lucky for me, you know, that they didn't find the right kid until I came in from Illinois, and Bill Mooney actually was offered the part and turned it down, um, long before long before I came west to, to take it, and he didn't want to, his mother didn't want him in the makeup, and then he went on to do Lost in Space, so lucky for me, and, and Bill and I are still good friends, you know. I, I, what, I, what I remember is, like, Yvonne DiCarlo in movies would always be very sexy. Yes. But the difference in, in the Munsters, in the pilot episode, that actress was sexy, and Yvonne DiCarlo just made it like a typical mother. Yeah, beautiful. It was almost like a very attractive uh, uh, house mom, almost like, the, like Audrey Meadows, you know, on on the uh, on the honeymooners, here's a very attractive woman in a very you know normal atmosphere, just doing the whole hum, cleaning, cooking, doing this thing. And, and Lily did the same thing. She was a very good mom, cleaned the house, you know, took care of the dungeon, and did this and did that. All, we all sat down. We all sat down and had. Well when, you th- well, when you think about it, one of the reasons I tell people it's still so popular is it, it, it instilled family values. You know, we were all eating dinner every night. Herman, he held a job. He wasn't a womanizer. Right. You know, he, paid the, he paid the rent. It was, uh, <laughs> it's funny. And people tell me, you know, well, they get the Adams family and the monsters mixed up. And I go, it's very easy to know who's who. The Adams family were monsters that look like people. And the monsters were people, they're monsters that look, were people that look like monsters. <laughs> That's well put. And yeah. did, did you ever see a spot? Uh, <laughs> your pet in the basement. Up only close. his head and only his tail and the, 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 the remnants of what he would eat when he would get out. Yeah, it would always look like, I, I always got the impression that was supposed to be Godzilla. 
Was he, was, he was actually a T-Rex. Oh, okay. <laughs> Close. Now, you're, you're, you have a favorite episode of the Monsters. I have actually a couple. Um, one I really enjoy was when I grew a beard in Eddie's nickname. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. That's a great one. And well, the to, reason I like that show so soup. much is that, that episode was so funny because of the trip to Dr. Dudley. Paul Lind was one of my favorite guest stars oh, on the yes. show. And his, oh, wow. His routine of looking through the peephole and seeing Herman Munster out there and taking a handful of uh, sedatives before he could see us was hilarious. And then I also liked the one where I won a TV show uh, contest to go visit Zombo. Oh, Louis Nye. Who was, who was Louis Nye, right. exactly. Oh, Louis Nye was one of my favorites. I used to love him as Sonny Drysdale. He was so funny. And and did Paul Lynn ever come on to you? No. <laughs> no. He, he, that, never, we'll, he never we'll, said, Eddie, we'll, come here. We'll leave that for Charles Nelson Riley on Lidsville. Okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll so, get to that. So you worked with every homosexual in Hollywood. <laughs> and the funny part was I didn't know it. <laughs> Well, you know, the funny thing is, back then, nobody knew it, sort of. It was like you'd watch Paul Lynn, and he'd have, like, shows and movies where he had a wife and kids. Yep. And you said, oh, he's this, like, eccentric. That's you, true. I yeah. mean, it was very much uh, – it just wasn't really addressed as like it is today, no doubt about it. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. So we have to get to more of the homosexual actors who made passes at you. Because <laughs> you, were, you were a cute boy. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it had to have happened. <laughs> Which is funny because we wrote down on a card, we, were just, we, we had some notes, and I wrote down uh, possible favorite episodes, and I j- just wrote down Zombo and Eddie Grows a Beard, having no idea of which two you would. Those were the two that I was going to mention. Wow. Well, those are the two, yeah, those are two of my favorites. And I also enjoyed the one where we went to the drag strip because anytime the Munster coach was involved in a show, I would really enjoy it because of two things. Number one, I was, I was a kid who enjoyed cars. And number two, it would get us outside because after being in that dark, dingy soundstage day in and day out, anytime you'd see the light of day, it was, it was a good day. And Gilbert and I were talking in, about, John Ca- about John Carradine, who played uh, uh, Mr. Gateman. Yep. And Gilbert was, was lamenting the fact that no other classic uh, yeah, know, horror I, stars did the show. I couldn't believe that Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. never appeared on this show. Yeah, that's true. They didn't. I, I don't know why that is. 
But the but the the creature from the Black Lagoon made, a, made yeah. an appearance. Do you remember right. the Al, creature's Al name? Al Stanton put on a mask, and they, they, he who? was Uncle Gil. Oh wait, yeah. who was it? Who was the actor? He wasn't an actor. It was it was Al Lewis's stand-in. Oh okay. Now and we, and we did have Uncle Lester come on one time, and that was the Wolfman. But I I I remember as a kid watching it, and the, at the end, the creature of the Black Lagoon comes in. And water's dripping out of his yeah. clothes. <laughs> yes. And they go, Uncle Gilbert. That's it. Let me get out of these dry clothes. Let me but, get out of these dry clothes and into something wet. Yeah, and I was so excited that his name was Uncle Gilbert. <laughs> they didn't miss a trick. Yeah, Gilbert, I like that. <laughs> so, Butch, it's 1964. The series is a hit, and you're yeah. Eddie Munster. You're on a you're on a runaway hit. Are, are, I mean, are you going to school at this time? Are you homeschooled? Are other other kids reacting to this? I mean, what is your life like? It was pretty crazy, but you know, when you're working, you have a tutor on the set. So I I was uh, out of public school from. All of the fifth grade, all of the sixth grade, and a little bit of the seventh grade. So when the show got canceled, I reentered school in the seventh grade, junior high school. And it was pretty difficult for a few days because I was in a very large junior high school. There was 3,400 students, and I was extremely small. And everybody knew that Eddie Munster lived in Gardena. So when I went to school, I actually got tossed out a couple times for creating a disturbance. And my disturbance was the fact that I sat on a bench with my honey bun and my orange juice, and 3,000 kids surrounded me. And didn't go to their class. So the uh, the boys' vice principal, Mr. Brenner, I'll always remember his name, gave me the boot. And I had the choice of either going back to school or, or going to a private school. And I really wanted to be in public school because I, you know, I wanted to be accepted as, as a regular guy. Sure. So I went back to school and I befriended a couple ninth graders and they protected me. And uh, after a few weeks, they kind of they kind of let up. But to this day, we still have my mom still lives in the same house and she still has people come knock on the door. You know, does Eddie Munster live here? <laughs> it's been 50 years, people. Now, let's let's move on to Lidsville. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that spoke uh, an hour right there. <laughs> the summer of 71, I uh, was uh, offered a role in this. Sid Marty Croft had contacted my mom about doing a show. My mom was working for the agency, and I didn't want really, to. I really turned it down three times. I thought it was silly. I didn't really, you know, get the idea of doing it. But they offered a very big paycheck, and they had said one thing to me. They go, "Well, Jack, this made Jack uh, Puffin stuff made Jack Wild a star." And I go, "Well, hold on, right now, Jack Wild was a star because he was on, he was nominated for Oliver as the Artful Dodger." Now he did your show, but let's you know, let's keep, let's keep things in perspective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I did think the Bugaloos was kind of a cool show, and I was when I was out doing the interview, the little girl that was on the show was really a cutie, this English girl. So I thought maybe if I did this show, I might run into her once or twice. And that was really the deciding factor of doing Lindsville was the money, and it was just one summer, and it was going to be on at ten thirty in the morning when I thought most of my friends would still have hangovers, and nobody nobody would ever be up to see it. <laughs> It's funny you say hangovers because everybody thought that, that Sid and Marty Croft were on LSD. Sid was. Oh, well, he was. Okay. Okay, we, we have a scoop. Sid, uh, Sid, it's really funny. There was actually three brothers. There was Sid. Sid would uh, come up with the concepts of however he came up with them. Marty would implement them in, into a, uh, a production value thing. They had the studio. They had the, the plant where they manufactured all the, uh, the things that they did. And then there was a third brother that I never met, but he signed all the checks when I would get my paycheck. It was a Harry Croft, 
and was like, where is Harry Crawford? How come nobody knows who he is? And to this day, I don't know if there was actually a, uh, a, a fake person or a, a structured accountant somewhere that, that did this. But apparently, the, sin, the world of Sid and Marty Croft had Harry Croft signing the checks. Now, now I heard a, a, a weird Sid and Marty Croft story. I, can, I heard someone who was working for Sid and Marty Croft, their father was shot one night. And really? so then the next day, they came in to, to work. And they, right after their father was just, was just uh, announced dead. And, and, and Sid, no, Marty said, hey, you know, he's, he looks a little off today. He's not doing a good, good job. He's being really slow. I'm going to get rid of him. And uh, and Sid goes, but Marty, you can't fire him. His father died the night before. He was shot. And and Marty said, we didn't fire him, Sid. We uh, we didn't shoot him, shoot Sid. Him. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Marty. <laughs> Marty was funny, you know. When when uh, when Charles was chasing me around and, and giving me kisses when in. And I was trying to. Oh wait, 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 wait! Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. This is Charles Nelson Riley, the the other the other homosexual in Butch what, Patrick's life. What Charles would do, what what would happen every day when I would go to work, is I basically was not into the gay community, and I didn't really understand all this. But Charles would sneak up behind me, and he would give me a big bear hug and give me a big kiss on the cheek every morning, and he'd go, "I love you," and I don't care who knows it. <laughs> so <laughs> this became an ongoing spoof you wow. know, on a daily basis and then finally I got upset and I said you know would you stop it Charles this is you know please just leave me alone it's becoming uncomfortable and I went to Sid and you complained. wait you were here you are a little kid yeah telling a, an adult homosexual stop it stop it and <laughs> you're I, coming I, on to a little boy stop it well, I went, to my, I went to my guys that I was doing records with. I go, why is he doing this to me? I go, do I look gay? Do I walk gay? Am I doing something to entice him? And they go, no, he doesn't care whether you're gay or not. He just likes it. He don't care. And I said, oh, all right, that's how it works. So I went to complain to, to Sid Croft about it, and, and then Sid was gay, and I didn't know that. Oh, wow. This is so like finally, this is like invasion of the body snatchers. Well, well, finally, Sharon, Sharon Baird, who was one of the Mouseketeers who had been working with the Crofts for years, took me aside and she finally grabbed me to. Okay, she pointed everybody out of the set and told me who, what their sexual preferences were, what the little people were, everything that I needed to know in a, in a crash course of about twenty minutes. And from that day on, I was okay. So, so what? Wow. What homosexual men? Who was who and who was what and what was going on? And finally, after that, I was I was I understood the whole steer, dynamics of it. Wow! You should steer clear of. <laughs> Let me put it this way: that was the last show I did. Oh. <laughs> who knew there was so much going on on the set of Lidsville? <laughs> it was crazy. It really was. Butch, tell tell us tell our listeners the premise of Lidsville again, because now that you've pointed out that was it Sid that was on acid? Yeah. Okay. It was a uh, a kid goes to a amusement park, which actually was Six Flags Over Texas. I see a magician who was Charles Nelson Riley perform a show. I then sneak back after everybody leaves to check out what's coming out of the top hat. When I see the top hat, it turns into colors. It starts growing and growing and growing. <laughs> wait, wait, I, wait. Hold on a second. Okay. <laughs> the, the 
idea. Now everything has a double meaning. (laughs) When you said, I had to look to see what was in his top hat. Right. So when I set the top hat down to the floor, it starts growing. I lean into it. I fall into it. I fall like Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole. And when I hit the bottom of this hat after about 30 seconds, I come to and I'm attacked by a bunch of little hat creatures that basically if you're a gangster you have a gangster hat if you're a cowboy you have a cowboy hat if you're a vampire you're a vampire hat everybody's character was basically simulated by a hat that they were in and see i had grown up in hollywood with all the people that were stand-ins all my life were little people because they don't have another kid stand in for another kid because of you know the mental issues or whatever so they always had little people so i knew all the little people in hollywood so i was actually working with all my friends when when I worked on Problem Child, uh, they 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 had a a midget Problem Child. <laughs> yeah, there was a vampire hat named Bella, which uh, which yes. Gilbert would appreciate, right? Oh yes, yes. yeah. There was a there was a, it was a very difficult show to do. It was the first year uh, they they used chroma key from a technical standpoint. It was very uh, cutting edge stuff. It was the first time that chroma key had ever been used. We did three cameras. Uh, we shot about fifteen pages a day. We had people that were doing three voiceover people that were doing the 20, 20 or so odd voices that we would hear over a loudspeaker. And then I was supposed to be able to look around at the hat creatures and figure out which one was doing which. And sometimes it got very confusing because you weren't hearing them speak. You were just hearing a loudspeaker with voiceover um, uh, people doing the characters. Do, do you remember the other voiceover people? No, I don't. Now, now you also – what was the – the movie you were in, oh, the Phantom Tollbooth. Yes. No, that was a great. That was a great experience. Um, that was working with Chuck Jones in '67 and '68. With uh, oh God, we had uh, Mel Blanc and Dawes Butler and June Foray and wasn't Hans uh, Conried. Hans Conried. Hmm. All the all the people that were the best of the best were involved in that movie, and I really enjoyed that because to this day. I have people come up to me sometimes and say, that's my favorite book, and it was my favorite movie. And then working with Chuck, I actually work now with his grandson, uh, uh, Craig, and I, and, and Linda Jones, his daughter, will do screenings of the Phantom Tollbooth, and I'll go join them and meet and greet people, and it's very nice. I, I enjoy it a lot. Yeah, because Chuck Jones was the animator of all of the great classic Warner Brothers. Yep. Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, and Darth Butler, wasn't he droopy? I believe so. I believe he was. Yeah. And you played Milo. You played the main character who finds, just for our listeners that don't know the movie, and you really should check out this movie, you you, you get a gift-wrapped toll booth that leads you into a parallel universe. Yeah, I'm a bored little boy. Uh, I'm I'm bored with life, and I'm just going through the motions, and all of a sudden this thing plops in my room, and I jump in this little car, and I turn into an animated character, and an hour later I come back out, and I've seen... Digitopolis and Dictionopolis and all the things that make you want to enjoy life and, uh, and, and value things. Um, and it's a great book. And it just turned uh, – the book was 50 last year. And you worked with all those people? Like, yep. And what were they like to work with? They were great. They were all very nice people. And it was funny because sitting across from Mel Blanc, I mean until you actually are in the same room with this guy and see the voices coming out of this little body, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Now, you, you mentioned, like, how most of your friends would have had hangovers. Yes. So now, now I, I hear stories you had a sip or two in your day. I had a, more than a sip or yeah. two. I had, <laughs> I, let me put it this way. I did, the, I did my best to keep kids off of alcohol and drugs by consuming as much as I could. 
<laughs> well, Bush, who could blame you? Look at the material you were doing. Believe me. I, I mean, you're to, falling in out of hats and magic well, toll boots. Here's what happened. I went to, <laughs> I, when I was 16 years old, I went to Brazil to do a movie with no teacher and no uh, guardian. My job was that I was there for three months. All I really had to do was show up for work and do my job. And after that, I could do whatever I wanted to do, which I proceeded to. And <laughs> I, as my sister spoke at my chip meetings when I got sober, she says he left as Rich and Cunningham. And three months later, he came back as John Lennon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so were you doing other drugs, too, or was it just mainly drinking? No, I did everything except needles. I never shot heroin, but um, the six, the different decades were, you know, the sixties. I, I was drinking in the sixties when I was sixteen. I started. And the seventies were a lot of weed and pot and quaaludes and things of that nature. And then the eighties were coke, and then the nineties was speed. And so you, you were topical. Yeah, whatever was around, whatever, whatever I could lay my hands on, or whatever I could get a good deal on. But now, I have been clean and sober for over three and a half years now. Oh, good for Great. you! Congratulations! Great, thank you. Thank you. Life, life has taken a really good – I was lucky enough to survive it, and, uh, and for some reason I'm, I'm here, and uh, I'm, I'm in good shape, and I survived cancer. Um, so all, you know, it's all good. Yeah, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Thanks good. for asking. Good, good. What type of cancer? Prostate. Wow. But you caught it in time, and things are good. Just – it was so lucky for me because when I went into treatment, I happened to have a world-class doctor in there that I befriended, and he fast-tracked me up to his uh, rock rock. Rock star ninja buddies, and they caught it right in time. And had I not gotten sober, I'd be dead. I wouldn't be talking to you. Well, good for you, man. Now, now, you. what what was the final deciding vote when you were smoking and doing all that crazy stuff to quit? Was there any one thing? Or well, I was back east. Um, I had just completed. This was in 2010. I had just completed my Halloween tour. Um, relationships had had you know fizzled i wasn't feeling well at all um i was going through my money pretty quickly and a friend of mine who had spent a lot of money on a pilot that i did that i felt very bad that i didn't give him a very good performance and i felt bad and he said listen he goes i'm not mad about the money he goes but literally he goes i'm concerned about you we found a treatment center in california that'll take you in they'll sponsor you the guy's a huge fan of the show and he wants to prove that you know he could get TV kids sober because it's it's such a curse that so many kids have died from it that went through Hollywood. So on that level, I wanted to go home. I knew something was wrong. I, I thought I'd get a little bit of an education because I've always thought I was pretty smart. And maybe by learning something, I could figure out why I was doing what I was doing. So, you know, they, there's a lot of lingo that goes along with it. But, you know, I, I was teachable. I was open-minded. I went in and after about a month or so, I started figuring out what was going on and why I felt better and why I wasn't doing the things I was doing anymore. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I'd had a year, then I had two years and three and so on and so on. So literally it was just a suggestion from some friends that maybe I might want to take this offer up in California and see and reevaluate things. It wasn't pressure. It wasn't, it wasn't an intervention. It was just somebody that cared about me suggesting something. So three years now, clean and sober, three years, seven months. Good for you. I, I mean everything. I mean I, I haven't touched a joint, a line, a, a crack pipe, anything. Nothing at all. I stay away from those Lidsville episodes. <laughs> uh, well, you know the funny part. The funny part about the whole thing is, is it's literally. I wish I would have known this a long time ago. But you know, you don't live in the past. You move forward. And and I went in just for alcohol, and everything else just kind of fell into place. And now I've never felt better. And literally, you know, I was out there. I was doing it for forty-one years. So that's a that's a really long stint. So sure. I I had my I had my share. I'm done. I'm ready to move on. Because I, I heard a story not uh, 
<laughs> stay on this for too long, but that you were on a plane with Al Lewis, uh-huh. and uh, you would do these like Halloween things. You'd get hired for a Halloween, and then you were kicked off the plane at one Almost. point? Almost. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> I, uh, I knew what was happening. As soon as they came my way, I, I, thought, I, thought I, was getting, I felt like Bob Uecker. Oh, I must be in first class. <laughs> <laughs> and I, they walked me past first class out the door. Wow. And I went, oh, shit. And I was heading down to Budweiser for spring break is what it was. Um, and I, I had a layover in Atlanta, and I was at the bar for about six hours. And I got so drunk that I was giving people fashion citations on the plane. Yeah. That, was the same, that was the same spring break where Danny Bonaducci got caught for crack. <laughs> a, a bad week for child uh, for child stars. A bad stars. week for everybody. 1990, spring break 1990. Boy, I wish I had been on that spring break. It sounds like a fun one. <laughs> Going back, uh, Butch, what was the movie in Brazil? Was it, it was, was a it... movie called The Sandpit Generals, and it was made by a gentleman named Hall Bartlett who was married to Rhonda Fleming. Um, it's funny because their divorce actually uh, spawned the, the script The War of the Roses with Kathleen Turner oh, and Michael Douglas. Yeah, I know that name, Hall Bartlett. Hall Bartlett made films in the '60s. Yeah. He did a lot of good stuff. Uh, he did Jonathan Livingston Seagull. That's what I, did I know. Voice. That's what I, I know did a from... voice in that for him. But they had this huge, bitter um, divorce after the movie was completed, and unfortunately, uh, Rhonda got the rights to half of the money of the movie that that the uh, the earnings of the of the movie, and he was so mad at her that he shelved the movie before he would let her make a penny. Wow. So the the movie fell by the wayside. Now, are you working a lot now? Yeah, it's funny. I just, yeah, it's funny. Um, it's like the first year when you get sober, everybody's kind of like wondering if you're if it's real. The second year, they kind of start coming up to you. And the third year, for some reason, this particular year, into my fourth year, I've actually just completed 25 episodes for uh, something up at a guy in Carmel who makes, uh, he invented, his wife invented the Airborne product for uh, colds and stuff. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's now got another company called uh, Pine Brothers Cough lo- uh, Throat Lozenges. And he asked me, I did a commercial for him 12 years ago, and he remembered me, and he asked me if I would be in the show that he's producing for this new television channel, and I agreed. And then we did 25 episodes, and it's basically like a mystery science theater making fun of Sea Hunts, Johnny Weissmiller's Jungle Gym, Ramar of the Jungle, and we... I do the whole thing in a pith helmet from an iron lung, believe it or not. <laughs> With a really uh, – my, my sidekick is a foul mouth, a black Muppet, and a uh, Danner Steve. Gilbert's in an iron lung right now. Yeah. Doing so the show. we did it, and it's very, very funny. And then and, and on top of that, I just had a gentleman, believe it or not, from Canada yesterday call me that wants to do a documentary uh, on my life since I got sober, which is kind of cool. That's great. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, you had your own band for a while. I don't know if you still do. No, in 1983, we uh, basically MTV was all the rage, and we decided we would try to do rock videos for other bands, and we just we needed to do a video, so we created Eddie and the Monsters. We put lyrics to the Monsters theme. I uh, actually. Don't sing. My guitar player sang it. I don't play bass. My producer played bass. <laughs> I was the original Munster. Ma- I like to say I'm the original Munster Manili. That's funny. But but didn't you have a, a novelty record in the '70s? Whatever happened to Eddie? That was it. That's the one I'm talking to. That was in '83. Oh, '83. Oh, 
In the early 70s, I had a band called Sugarloaf as my studio band. Right after Lidsville, they tried to turn me into a Bobby Sherman. Metro Media had fired Bobby Sherman, and they <laughs> were looking for another teeny bop star. So my mom uh, pitched me to them, and we did um, some BG music. We did a song called Io Io and I Want Sugar, and we actually went on American Bandstand. We toured around a little bit, but we didn't really catch on. But it was fun to be a teeny bop star for a year. Everybody should try it. What was the name of the band? The, well, Sugarloaf was the, the band. Sugarloaf, a green-eyed lady. Yeah, that, yeah, they were my studio band. <laughs> no kidding. So, yeah. so you are like a totally talentless rock star. <laughs> Absolutely, couldn't no sing, couldn't it. play an instrument. Couldn't. <laughs> and I told them that up front, and they knew it. <laughs> Did, didn't you sing your own songs in the Phantom Toll Booth? Wasn't that no. you singing? Really? They, they dubbed your voice. I like to tell people I'm I'll be so damned. Bad I put Metro Media Records out of the record business. <laughs> so you didn't even have to show up for work half the time. Yeah, I could, I could literally phone it in. <laughs> now, what was it like uh, women wise when you were a rock star or when you were Eddie for that matter? Well, Eddie, I was not doing anybody because I was only 12 years old. But, but my first date, is, I do like to tell people my first date, I had such a crush on the first Marilyn Munster. Her name was Beverly Owen. And she was nice enough one day to come down and pick me up at my house, which was quite a drive. And she took me to go this, see Mary This Poppins was, your, this was your mother. Theater. No, no, the first Marilyn. The, the first Marilyn. Oh, first yeah, Marilyn. Beverly, yeah, Beverly yes, Owen. that was the freakishly pretty monster. Yeah, yes. Bev Owen, and she took me to yes. go see Mary Poppins. So I told people my first date was with, was with Marilyn Munster. But um, I didn't actually start dating until I was like 15, uh, right when I went to Brazil. And when I came back, that was when I started wow. finding, the, finding women to be doable. <laughs> Brazil must have been a great place to lose your virginity. Actually, I had I had a right before. I was actually this is funny. I was a good boy down there. I went out with a French camera crew to the red light district, but I never did anything. <laughs> I, was in, I was in love with my girlfriend back in the, back in Hollywood. That's nice. All I can picture is is a guy in a full Eddie Munster outfit <laughs> in the red light district. Oh God! It was actually pretty funny because at 16 years old down there, I was. Going on the the Navy ships and bringing off cigarettes, so I was I had a cigarette thing going on. I was also uh, do, doing money exchanges for the sailors, so I had I had a lot of little side businesses going on while I was down there. Wow! I was buying pot and selling it to everybody in the in the crew. So you were you you broke every law uh, yeah. before you were like sixteen. Yeah, and I and I was down there, and I never did mail home any of my schoolwork. I just told him it got lost in the mail. <laughs> You were just being an entrepreneur, Butch. I was. I, I was it's kind of like risky business, you know? What, what? I have to ask you, what's your take on Ben Stiller's uh, Eddie Munster parody, Cape Munster? I love it. Yeah. I think it's hilarious. If, if you guys haven't seen it, check it out. It's on, it's on YouTube, and it's a must-see. It's a spoof of the Martin Scorsese Cape Fear with Ben no, Stiller. And Very good stuff. Have you, Very ta- good. have you met him? Have you talked to him about it? Did he ever reach I, out to you? I only met Ben once, and that was at the TV Land Awards. I was uh, handing out the little statuettes and doing it badly because mm-hmm. I was still high. <laughs> and, and no, wait, then, wait. Then, where was this again? <laughs> where you were? That was at the end of my run, and they haven't asked me back, and I haven't even bothered calling them. <laughs> the t- the t- they don't, I, I used to write that show. They don't do it anymore. The TV, oh, the TV Land Awards, they retired it. So you had, a, you had to hand out awards? Uh, I had to hand out awards, yeah. It was, it was pretty sad. And you were totally stoned out of your head. I was, I was totally stoned, yeah. <laughs> there were some episodes of Lidsville that I've seen that I didn't remember doing. 
Yeah, you, but you've always been good at kidding yourself and not taking yourself too seriously. But you, you played yourself in a Simpsons episode and also in the David Spade comedy, Dickie Roberts. Yep. Former child yep. star. Now in- yeah. Oh. Well, you know, it's funny. This guy yesterday that was talking about the documentary, he said, I hope, you, I hope I don't offend you. He goes, but you're, you're talking about a haunted house, and that has Munster overtones, and you're talking about your Eddie Munster inks, and everything you seem to do has a Munster angle to it. And I go, well, I go, you know, what am I supposed to do? And basically, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. People enjoy the Munsters. People have come to me with opportunities. And do I have a problem making people smile and sharing my experience with them? I said, no. So, you know, literally, it's tough enough to get a break in this world. So if this is my break, so be it. And I'm happy to help. That that's surprising because so many actors, they hate what they're loved for. Like, like like Sean Connery hated being James Bond and all these people. Like, you know, the people Nimoy had a problem with Spock. Yeah. He wrote a book. I am not Spock. Right. Well, this, actually, speaking of books, September 24th, I do have a book coming out, and it's, it's called Munster Memories. And literally, the reason for it, I've, for the last three years, I've had thousands of people come up to me and say how much they enjoyed the show and how much it meant to them. And, you know, can they take a picture or can I talk to their, their father on the phone or whatever? So it's like all I got to do is put these stories into a book, and it'll sell itself. It's not like really my spin on Hollywood. It's the world's spin on the Munsters. Although I, I get suicidal now when they say, uh, can I can you talk to my father? Because I'm thinking, wait a minute. I used to watch that show on TV. <laughs> <laughs> What's the book called, Butch? Munster Memories. It's coming out in September. September 24th, 50 years to the day. Terrific. Did I read somewhere that you purchased a haunted house? I'm in the process of it. Hopefully, we'll be closing in the next month. Or so. well, well, gra- well, no, wait. not any. No, this is, this is not any haunted house. This is my grandmother's house that she owned in Missouri that I went back to live in right after the Munsters. Um, she was a big antique dealer, and she bought this be- this beautiful big Victorian mansion. And uh, I was in town about two years ago, to just driving through the country, and I wanted to go see the house, and it was vacant and foreclosed upon. Then my sister said, "You know, it's, it's haunted." And I said, well, I never saw the ghost. And she goes, well, you were always gone. But she goes, believe me, that's, that's a haunted house. So one thing led to another. I decided to buy it and make it a base of operations in the Midwest. So um, wouldn't, a, wouldn't a house being haunted be reason not to buy it? No, actually, <laughs> in this day and age, paranormal activity is really popular. A lot of people are interested <laughs> in it. I've already lived in the house anyway, so the ghost probably knows me. And it's a female ghost, 22 years old, totally attractive. Does she look like Beverly Owens? I'm a syndicated radio show. Maybe this ghost will be my sidekick. And and if it's a ghost, then you're Eddie Munster. It's a perfect. (laughs) I see spinoff. I like to tell people it's like this. It's a small town. Imagine Andy of Mayberry with Eddie Munster in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) <laughs> now, I was talking to Gilbert beforehand, uh, Butch, and I, I, uh, I read somewhere, I saw somewhere that you, you either still have the Woof Woof doll or you were marketing Woof Woof dolls. I did. I sold them originally in my stupor to get high <laughs> and didn't get a very good price for them. We did sell 93 of them over a 20-year period. For a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a piece. Wow! So I did make a few bucks on that one, and just recently, the gentleman who I sold them to downsized and offered. He wanted me to help him sell his collection, and I decided that I had a pretty good year. So instead of helping him sell it, I bought it. So I bought back everything that I sold him a long time ago, 
plus the bicycle that was made by George Barris and Von Dutch and a few other things. George Barris, who also designed the, the famous Munster coach. Yep, and just the sold show. the Batmobile for 4.3 mil. Amazing. So how were you selling the dolls before while you were stoned? Or is it out I, on the I, no, I actually didn't do that. What happened was is the gentleman contacted me about the bicycle. He said, do you have anything else? I said, I have the head of a, a wolf wolf doll. He's like, the head <laughs> on a stick is all that's left of him. <laughs> <laughs> but if you create them, if you buy them and you make them, we can sell them. And he said, I'll take that on. All you have to do is make a phone call and write a little note when I sell one of them. And we, when we sold 93 of them. It was actually a pretty good moneymaker. At, night, at a thousand a pop, it sounds like it. I made about four hundred a doll. Wow! So I made like oh, thirty six oh, grand on oh, it. Okay. Now, now, did you save any of this, or did it all go to getting uh, more? No, I, I divided it up. It went between pot, <laughs> crack, speed, alcohol, <laughs> lawyers, lawyers. <laughs> Where do we get our hands on one of these dolls, Butch? Uh, they, they're not available anymore. Too bad. We stopped making them. <laughs> And now that I'm straight, I don't have to think about making making more dolls to support my habit. <laughs> it's a bright new world. Well, what's the name of your book again, and when's it coming out again? September 24th, Munster Memories. I actually am still taking some stories. If people want to participate, go to MunsterMemories.com and uh, submit your story. You may make it into the book. So it can be just a fan of the Munster, somebody. All you got to do is have a fan and it's something that you like about the show, whether you had a funny hair, you know, people called you Eddie Munster because you had a widow speak, <laughs> or whether you, whether you designed your first car because you were inspired by the Munster coach, or whatever, anything to do with the Munsters. It, and the stories are phenomenal. They're all very warm. Some of them are very sad. A lot of kids with very troubled childhoods watch the show to escape from what they were going on, what was going on at home. So, I mean, it's really heart-wrenching sometimes. What about my story of Al Lewis insulting me at dinner? Would that make sense? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you think that's bad? I went there one time, and he was supposed to have a table for me and Kevin Burns, and he told us to go get some air. <laughs> <laughs> get some air. <laughs> the nerve of him. The noise. Or, or he'd do this. But... But you think you know, but you don't know. You think you know, you know nothing. <laughs> I used to love the way the steam came out of his ears. The, ep- uh, the episode where you guys rent the house and then you come back. And, far out monsters to the Standells. Right, the Standells doing a cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Terribly. Yeah, terribly. And, and of course, there's that great moment where <laughs> Grandpa's standing <laughs> perfectly still so the, the yeah. special effects guys yeah. are blowing the smoke out of his ears. <laughs> Just. They go, they're out of this world. He goes, what's, what's the big deal? I've been there before. Oh, great stuff. <laughs> Warped my childhood, Butch. I thank you. No problem. So this, this has been a, a surprisingly enjoyable <laughs> Wildly episode. entertaining. And, and it, what's really great to hear, and I mean it, it's like, Every child star you hear about, you just think, oh, well, this is this guy's an inch away from suicide or ODing. And here you you're cleaned up and you're working. And the idea that you've got such a sense of humor about your whole life. Well, it's gotten me through some tough times. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I admire you for being so forthcoming about all of it, Butch, and so, so uh, you know, pardon the expression, sober about it. Yeah, no, per- <laughs> no problem there, buddy. Well, this this is uh, 
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my sidekick, Frank Santo Padre, and we have been interviewing Eddie Munster himself from the Munsters, the wonderful Butch Patrick. Thank you, Butch. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. <laughs>